We are in Revelation chapter 11. We will read the first 13 verses of this particular chapter. And we are in the interlude section between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And as we saw in the vision of the seven seals, there was a break um, in between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. We have that same pattern here in uh, this particular vision of the seven trumpets. Last week, we saw the mighty angel from heaven um, reigning and ruling over both the sea and the land. And we saw that it was Jesus sovereign over the attacks of the world um, against his church. And we we will see this filled out a little bit more as we consider the imagery and the visions for us in chapter 11. So as we approach God's word, please take it up, follow along and hear these words of the Lord. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their body and refuse to bury them. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come, saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these words and for this reminder that you have marked off a people for yourself and that you have given them a job. And so, Lord, as we consider these words, comfort us, convict us, and move us to move closer to you and to grow more and more day by day in holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you know that you cannot trust Adam's You can't trust atoms. They make up everything. Most of us have had some type of science class as we were working our way through school. And most of us, as you took this science class, learned about atoms like I did. You learned about the the kind of planetary model of what an atom looked like. You had a a nucleus at the center and then it concentric circles that, that grew in size as they moved out from the nucleus in the center 
you saw the orbits of the electrons. And it's the way that almost every young person learns about atoms within their school, within their schooling and their education. Did you know that that's not really what atoms look like? They're not a nucleus here on a flat set of circles with electrons. Oh, there's a nucleus at the middle and the, the electrons definitely orbit around the outside, but it's, it's not that model that you and I learned when we were in elementary and, and junior high and middle school. So if that's not the way that atoms actually exist within the world, why would we use that particular teaching method? Well, it's because it's the teaching method that an elementary or a middle school student can understand as you are introducing them to the concept of atoms. A younger child can understand this dot with the circles around it as they learn the basic principles of what an atom is. And as they grow in their understanding, as they grow in their knowledge of science and the microscopic then they can be taught that even though this is the basic principles, this is how those basic principles actually look in nature. We have the same concept for us within the scriptures. We're based upon the progress of revelation from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. God reveals his plan, his will to his people based on pictures and ideas that they can understand. That's why throughout the prophets, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or a number of the minor prophets, whenever God speaks about the restored and reconciled Israel after the time of the exile, he speaks of his presence with his people in terms of the temple. If we were to go to Ezekiel chapter 38 through 40, we would see a picture of a glorious temple that is glowing and radiating with the presence of God. But something has happened between the time of the Old Testament prophets and the time that John is writing. It is something that is so fundamental that it takes those images that we are given by the Old Testament prophets and it reinterprets them in light of this grand event that happened in history. Do you know what that event was? It was the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled the imagery and symbolism that was given in the Old Testament. And the New Testament apostles taught and wrote in order to adjust our understanding of those symbols. They're definitely not simple symbols. Today's passage is one of those that we must look at in light of Jesus' life, his ministry, his work, and the unfolding of his will in the New Testament to see what John is seeking to communicate to us. And as we do, we will once again see that God has set apart his church in the world to be protected from the dangers of this world and the judgments that fall upon this earth before Jesus comes back. And we will also see the work that the church does in light of that setting apart. So first we have the imagery of the temple. So John opens up in this vision. He's still from the perspective of earth. Remember uh, chapters uh, uh, 
4 through 9, we're from the perspective of God's throne room. And then in chapter 10, we drop to an earthly perspective. And John is still there in that earthly perspective. And, and, an, and an angelic being gives him a, a ruler, a measuring line rod. And he says, go measure the temple. Now, we won't see the, the numbers associated with that measurements here in our, in our passage today. You notice we didn't get the dimensions of the temple. That comes later. As we see the new heaven, the new earth, the city of God descending to the new heavens and the new earth. And we will get the outline of the the measurements, the dimensions of that new city, the new heavens, the new earth. Spoiler alert, it's a perfect cube. And the only other perfect cube within the scriptures is the Holy of Holies. Once again, symbolizing for us that we will dwell in God's presence forever without the mediation, without the mediation of a merely human priest. But we will be there because of the mediation of Jesus, the God-man, who was our glorious priest. But what is the point of John measuring this temple? And what is the temple? Well, to answer the question, what is the temple, we need to kind of go back in the series a little bit, and then we'll move forward. Back in January when we started I mentioned, I taught that there were several different ways that scholars and preachers have, have come to the book of Revelation and, and sought to interpret it. And we, we narrowed those ways down to past, present, and future. The past view approaches Revelation from the viewpoint that everything up to chapter 19 has already been completed in the past with the fall of Jerusalem and the the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire in 70 AD. They would view this as a literally John being sent to earth to measure the temple, the actual temple, Herod's temple that existed at that time prior to 70 AD in the city of Jerusalem. Now, in my study, I have come to a point where I do not take this view because I see the evidence pointing to a later date for the book of Revelation. And also because the past view, very much like me, views everything in the book of Revelation as symbolic, except for this particular verse right here. So they go symbol, 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 real temple. And so those those are two of the reasons I don't take that particular view. The futurist views the book of Revelation as something that happens in the future after a rapture and, and during a time of persecution and tribulation upon the world. And it views the temple here that John sees as a temple that is built under the direction of the Antichrist um, during that seven years of tribulation. Yet, even though it is built during the, the, under the direction of the Antichrist, God uses it and the reestablished sacrificial system to bring about the salvation of Jews during that particular period of time. This view forces you to admit that God has two systems of salvation. That Gentiles will be saved through faith in the accomplished work of Jesus, while Jews will be saved through keeping of the law. Brothers and sisters, if the law could save, why would we need Jesus? The person who approaches Revelation from a present perspective will view the visions of Revelation as pointing to patterns that work out in the world and in the church from an ever-increasing spiral that will ultimately arrive at the point of final judgment. And as I mentioned back in January, I'll let you know now, I do take a present view of the book of Revelation. 
The temple, for those who interpret this as a present view, is a picture of the people of God. Where do I get that idea? Well, I get that idea from 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Peter 2 and 2 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 22. In fact, I'm going to read those verses for you. For he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Jesus, just to kind of explain here where we are, where we're going, Paul's been talking about the salvation that comes through Jesus, through faith in himself. And he's talking about that at one time there was a barrier between Jew and Gentile, but also a barrier between humanity and God. And the work of Jesus Christ has abolished both barriers, the barrier between Jew and Gentile and the barrier between humanity and God as seen in the tearing of the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place in the original temple. Picking this up, his purpose was to create in himself one new man, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the father by one spirit. So that hostility between Jew and Gentile has been done away with in the cross as we all come to the realization and the understanding that every human being stands before God convicted as a sinner by their own lips, by their own confessions that they will give as they stand before God. And yet Jesus brought those two people together as as reconciled and redeemed before God. He goes on to say, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's peoples and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We see the dividing line between Jew and Gentile abolished in Christ. And as this dividing line is abolished, we are being built person by person, brick by brick into a temple where God's presence can dwell in its fullness of its glory with his people. We actually see this imagery played out in Acts chapter two. We get we get all worked up over the pillars of fire. And what does that mean? We go back to the Old Testament imagery. When did pillars of fire show up in religious moments for the people of God at the dedication of the tabernacle and the dedication of the temple to symbolize that God lived and dwelled with his people. And so when we talk about the temple being set apart in the book of Revelation, we are talking about the church. And we are, we are hearing echoes of Revelation 7, where the people of God are sealed against the dangers that will come from living faithfully in this world. And that's the picture we have here again, as, as John is told to measure, to set a boundary around the inner court of the temple and to count the people that are in there. God is instructing him to identify who is in the church and to see that there is a hedge around them. What about the outer temple and the people that are there? Well, they're still in the temple, 
but they're not included in those who are set apart and who are counted. And why not? As John says in his letter to the church in 1 John, he says, they went out from us because they were never part of us. Brothers and sisters, there are men or women sitting in this room today, more than likely, who have heard over and over the good news of Jesus' offer of salvation through the cross and yet have never had it change their heart. We are not marked by church membership. We are not marked by how many weeks out of the year we sit in a sanctuary. We are commanded to be here as the people of God. We are commanded to gather and worship, but that's not what makes us part of the church. There are many people within the church who are not part of the church. And they will suffer the harm of the judgment that is to come. Yes, the church will suffer harm and hostilities, but they are set apart and protected by God for all of eternity so that the harm will not ultimately hurt them. Those who are not truly set apart by grace through faith will suffer not only pain and judgment here, but judgment and pain in eternity as well. So we see the church here set apart and protected once again, and we should take comfort from that. You and I, brothers and sisters, as we struggle with illness, as we struggle with the weight of this world, as we struggle with the hostilities of people who are blaming us for protecting life, we are protected by God and we are set apart by God for a holy eternity. But we're not just set apart to do nothing. We are given a work as well. And that is explained for us in this passage as we continue through this. And we see these two witnesses. So who are these two witnesses? Well, once again, there have been various and sundry interpretations of this. We have have been told that this is Elijah and um, Enoch, because those are the two people in the Old Testament that did not die. And so they have a death coming. Um, We have been told that they are Elijah and Moses. And we'll actually look at how that does play into what who these people are. We've been told that these are some type of witness, some type of angelic being that God sends to the earth to declare the goodness of grace and salvation. But once again, where do we go when we want to interpret the imagery of Revelation? Go to the Old Testament. Scripture interprets Scripture. And we read of two olive trees in a lampstand earlier today. And we have read earlier in the book of Revelation of lampstands. And what are lampstands in the book of Revelation? is the church. And that is what these two witnesses are. In the Old Testament law, in the book of Deuteronomy, it was told that any time a charge was brought against somebody, it could be only be heard if there were two or more witnesses. So this reminds us that the church testifies, the church witnesses to things that are true. And they witness in a time of hostility. We're told here that the, the holy city will be trampled on, the church will be trampled on for 42 months And the two witnesses will have power for 1260 days. And then after three and a half years, they will die. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, all are the same period of time. They are all equal in the amount of time that they cover. And they come to us from the book of Daniel, where Daniel has shown that for three and a half years, the nation of Israel will suffer before restoration finally comes. And this more than likely that was fulfilled in the work of Antiochus Epiphanes as he uh, persecuted and tortured and killed the Jews and set up an altar to Zeus in the temple courtyard. 
And it's a picture of the suffering that the church will go through as the world seeks to destroy it. And in the midst of this suffering, the witnesses are going about a work. What is the work they are doing? Well, number one, it's a prophetic work. What are, what are we told they do here? That they, they have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. This does point us back to Moses and to Elijah. Elijah being the one who prayed over the northern kingdom, over the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, because God directed him to pray so that the skies would be shut and it would not rain for a period of three and a half years. Moses is the one who in Egypt, when he's told Pharaoh to let my people go, and Pharaoh refused, turned the waters to blood and struck the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. We're told as well that those who come against the church will find themselves the victim of fire that comes from the mouth of the church and devours the enemies of the church. Just like the prophets of the Old Testament, the church proclaims a message of judgment on sin. Unlike Elijah and Moses, however, we do so in the context of the gospel. What is the message that gathers the church? What is the one and only message that the church has to proclaim? It's that humanity has sinned, God hates sin and will judge sin, but has provided a means for salvation from sin. We miss the mark. We don't even shoot at the mark that God has set before us. We go our own way and shoot at our own target because we want what we want. And that puts us at odds with God. That puts us at war with God. And if the God of the Bible is the true God, that puts us on the losing end of a war with God. And yet he sent his son to lose the war so that we could have life and the spoils of victory. He raised him from the dead so that the power would be there to reconcile us to God. The means and the power are there through the work of Jesus to reconcile us with God. And that is the message that we proclaim. We not only proclaim grace and mercy, but we proclaim drought and plague and judgment and fire upon the world. We may not see it here on this earth and in this place, but one day for everybody who rejects the gospel message, judgment will fall. So our work is a prophetic work. We proclaim the gospel. It's also a faithful, it's a, it's a work of faithful living, of faithful witness. The word witness here where he talks about the two witnesses is the word that we get martyr from. It's the word used in Acts chapter 1 where, where Jesus tells the disciples, you will be my witnesses. You will be my martyrs upon this earth. And yes, today when we hear the word martyr, we think, whew, I'm safe because I don't live in a world, in a country, in a culture where they're going to actually try to kill me. But Jesus does call us in his gospels to die daily to ourselves. Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we are to be living sacrifices. We are to live faithfully to God before the world. 
not compromising, not giving up on the truth of the gospel. So the church is marked and measured and set apart for protection in the midst of the dangers of the world. The church is the witness to God and the church has a hard future in front of it. As history progresses, the work of the church in the face of persecution will get harder. It's described here as the witnesses are killed. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. And we'll see some of that picture show up for us in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, as we consider the dragon and the woman in the wilderness. But brothers and sisters, we do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against powers and principalities, powers and principalities that have been defeated and yet are still causing death and destruction in their death throes. And there will come a day in the history of the church, in the history of this world, where it will seem like the church has ultimately lost. The church will die out in the world, or at least they think it will. It will be like the days of Elijah, where Elijah had that glorious moment of victory on Mount Carmel and then ran for his life saying, God, how dare you do this to me? I'm the only one who loves you in this world. I'm the only one who loves you in this nation. And the church will seem to be dead. And the world will party. The world will celebrate. The world will give each other gifts and they will rejoice because they are finally free of those killjoys who only talk to us about judgment in hell. That's the beginning of judgment, brothers and sisters, Paul tells us in Romans chapter one. It's not death, it's not destruction. It's God saying, fine, I will remove the effects of my grace from your culture. And you will truly see what it looks like to live in a world free of God's hand. It is a violent world. It is an ugly world. It's a world that will still blame the church. The church in America is at the lowest point that it has ever been in the history of America. And everything is still our fault. According to our culture. And as soon as we can be gone, then the world can get on with a prosperous and glorious life. And they will celebrate. But the freedom is short lived. The church is persecuted for three and a half years. The world celebrates for three and a half days. And then the Ezekiel 37 breath of God, that breath that resurrected the dry bones on the battlefields of Israel, breathes life into the church. And just like Elijah was revealed to him that there were 7,000 brothers and sisters who loved the Lord and served him, the church will have a glorious resurrection and the The world will tremble. We'll be called into God's glorious presence for a brief moment as we await the sounding of the seventh trumpet and the final falling of God's judgment upon the world. Some of the world will will die in that initial resurrection. Some of the world will, will put on a theater show of worship, honoring and glorifying God, hoping to avoid his wrath. But the seventh trumpet will blow. And Christ will return. Brothers and sisters, we are living in a world that is hostile to the church. And yet we are called to a prophetic work. 
God has set us apart. God will protect us in the midst of the hostilities of this world as we move forward proclaiming the good news, the good news of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And part of that proclamation of the good news is a faithful life before God. We are so tempted as we scroll through um, social media, as we listen to the news, we are, we are so tempted to think, well, maybe if, I just, maybe if I just shave a little off the corner of my testimony here, maybe I won't get into so much trouble. Maybe I can prolong the life of the church if we just, just, just compromise a little. God says no. Compromise leads to ineffectiveness for the gospel. So if we don't have the gospel, we don't have anything. If we don't have the good news of holiness and salvation in Christ, well, then we're just another civic club, another civic organization that collects dues and maybe does something with them in the community. Brothers and sisters, we are called to live faithfully even in the face of hostility. And the Spirit, the lampstand there in Zechariah, reminds us that it is the Spirit pouring out His power upon the church that gives us the power to live a faithful witness life. You may not die for your faith, but you are called to die to yourself daily in the living of a faithful life and in the proclamation of the gospel. And we do so in the hope and in the knowledge that we will live eternity glorifying God, truly giving glory to God and worshiping at the feet of the Lord of heaven. Let us pray. God above, faithfulness in a hostile world is difficult and it has gotten more difficult even within my lifetime. Lord, we lament the anger and the hatred in our culture today. And we ask that you would give us the boldness to proclaim prophetically where true reconciliation comes from. Fill us with your spirit. Revive us so that we might give your message to the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. As you go this week and you consider the ever-increasing increasing hostilities that, that the church is experiencing in America and the fact that those who profess faith uh, are, are dwindling, the percentage of people in America who profess faith is dwindling, take heart that the gospel is setting fires in the third world, you know, the developing world, in places like Africa and South America and Latin America, places um, that uh, have not had access to the gospel, many places are opening up and and the the gospel is flourishing, the church is flourishing. As refugees from the Middle East come to Europe, the gospel is flourishing there as well among those communities. So take heart. We have not reached the end quite yet. And so the gospel is still alive and powerful. The church is not dead. As we consider that in our life, in our work, in our play, take this blessing upon you. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. May our Lord Jesus Christ encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.